What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I'm going to get through as many of these as I can in something like 25, 30 minutes. Sometimes I say that and then I go over, so we'll leave that door open for now. First question is from Dorothy. Actually, first two questions from Dorothy, uh, two good ones here. First question is, is the mind-muscle connection really that important for hypertrophy? Um, and, and is it important? I would say it's relevant. Uh, it is certainly relevant. I'm not going to say that you, you know, feeling it in the target muscle, let's say, is not relevant. It certainly is. Um, but it's not the most important thing. And most people ask this question, what I would rather you do is focus more of your mental energy and attention on getting your setup and execution correct for a movement. If you get yourself set up in a position where the position you're in and the movement that you're doing, the target muscle, the thing that you wanna be working is the best answer to the problem your body's trying to solve, which is moving that load, I'm gonna be really happy. You're gonna be 90% of the way there. It's like people are like, well, I can't feel my, you know, if someone's like, oh, I need to activate my glutes. It's like if you sit down in a chair and you stand up, your glutes worked because that's what the glutes do. And so if we get you set up in a position where the muscle you're trying to work is the best answer to the problem that your body's trying to solve and you're set up in a way that makes sense biomechanically, I'm not saying that's all that matters, but that is that is what I'd rather you spend more time focused on is like, if you're like, yeah, you know, I never feel my split squats in my glutes, Jordan, it, my mind-muscle connection isn't good. I'm not thinking to myself, well, we could really work on your mind-muscle connection. I'm thinking, well, we probably need to work on your setup and your execution to make the glutes the thing that your body wants to use based on your technique and your execution. And so this idea of like feeling it, where do you feel it? I'm not saying that that's not relevant. It's totally relevant. It just doesn't supersede. It's not more important than your setup and your execution. And quite often, the setup and the execution is where you need to be paying a little bit more attention. That's where you need to be focused on. It's not like, well, I'm not feeling it in my glutes. It's like, yeah, you're not doing it in a way where the glutes are going to be the thing that your body wants to use to solve this problem. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people aren't, and I don't mean this in, uh, condescendingly, this is a fact, like most people can't really discern the difference between uh, a good sensation and a bad sensation, right? We get sensation, we feel it somewhere, we assume that that's a good thing. Sometimes it's like that crampy feeling that we think is a good thing, not really super helpful. Usually that is us putting the joint into a compromising position. You know, if you do lateral raises directly out to the side, you might feel it, but that could be actually some impingement, um, you know, versus doing it in a scapular plane. And so sometimes we can't really parse out the difference between good sensation and bad sensation um, or less optimal sensation and more optimal sensation, however we want to phrase that. And so I would rather see people, especially people that are new to resistance training, hypertrophy training, or even just certain movements. You might find that when you do a movement for the first time, your mind-muscle connection or you your ability to kind of feel it in the target muscle sucks. And as you get neurologically better at doing it, you do it more often, your body figures out the best way to to orient, uh, orientate your body, that you actually start to see an improved ability to feel it in the target muscle. Um, so especially as you're new to something, I really want people to focus on biomechanically, how can I get this to make the, this the most sense? How can I make this make the most sense? How can I make, um, how can I get myself in a position where the target muscle, the thing that I wanna grow, is biomechanically the thing that has the is the best answer to the problem that my body is trying to solve. The best answer to trying to move this load in this direction is my blank. That's what I want you to focus on. Um, over time, what I will say is over time, if you are doing a movement and you never get any sensation, what I mean is you never get any pump, you never get any disruption or, or feeling of fatigue in that muscle. You know, like if you do hack squats, 
Um, and you never, ever, ever get a pump in your quads. You never, ever, ever get a, uh, a feeling of like later in the day when you try and go down the stairs, you don't feel it at all in the quads. You never get sore in the quads. That is relevant data that I would want to look at. But again, what I would say in that scenario is it's probably your setup and your execution that needs work. It's probably not a mind muscle connection thing. It's probably an execution thing. Um, Excellent. Let's move on. Dorothy, your second question. Look at you right off the bat. Two good ones. Um, she says, if I train hard each time close to failure, but I don't do progressive overload, is this a problem? Um, well, it's a problem if you want to get stronger or build muscle. Absolutely, yes. If you want to build muscle or get stronger, by definition, you're going to have to continue to push yourself hard enough to grow. So progressive overload just means that like overload, the word overload means to work hard enough to grow. Progressive overload means to continue to do that over time as you get stronger. So if you do if you do overload, what that means is you worked hard enough to get an adaptation. But now that you have that adaptation, let's say you, you gained 1% strength, you gained 1% muscle mass, you need to work 1% harder next time to continue to push the envelope. You need to progressively, over time, overload, work hard enough to grow. And so it's certainly a problem if you want to gain muscle or get stronger, you're going to need to to continue to push yourself past uh, where you did previously. That doesn't necessarily mean every single exercise, every single workout, it just means this, like as more of like a um, something that I want you guys to think about doing over time. Yes, we can break it down to progression models that allow you to do this week to week, but um, more broadly speaking, you need to continue to push yourself harder over time. So... I was trying to think about this, like what is, the, I was trying to add a little context myself and try and take a stab at the situation I think you're in. You're training hard and you're going close to failure, but you're not doing more weight or reps week to week. That's what it sounds like. You're like, I'm training hard each time close to failure, but I'm not progressively overloading, which means I'm not doing more reps than last week ever, or I'm not doing more weight than last week ever. And so I was trying to think of scenarios where this might happen. And the first scenario was, um, well, the first scenario is you might not be doing progressive overload in the sense that you might not be tracking your workouts and you might not be um, like actually acknowledging that you did 10 last week and you're going to do 11 this week, but you might actually be doing progressive overload without even knowing. And this is the this is the best case scenario uh, is that you are training hard, going close to failure. You're not tracking your workouts, but by the nature of you going close to failure every single time you go to the gym when you're doing your sets, the numbers just have to be going up. Um if you're, you know, again, if things are, if you're doing enough volume, you're doing the right amount of like uh, sets per muscle group, if you're eating enough calories, if you're, you know, sleeping enough, if you're also going to failure on most or all of your sets and you, let's say, even if you're not tracking your workouts, just by happenstance of, you know, just by chance of getting into the gym and working close to failure, what brought you close to failure this time, six months from now, won't bring you close to failure and you'd have to be trying harder. And so you, you know, you might be doing progressive overload without even knowing it if you continue to go closer and closer to failure and you continue continue to get stronger and stronger and then you keep going close to failure, it's gonna take more and more over time, which might be happening whether you're tracking it or not. Um, I'm not so sure that's what's happening. Um, that would be, that's maybe an idealistic scenario. Um, I find that if you're not tracking the workout and you don't actually tangibly know what you did last time, what you did last week, what you did last mesocycle. It's tough to kind of just stumble upon overload. It's tough to stumble upon this continuation of doing more. Um, and that's why tracking and, you know, looking back at what you previously did and having some form of progression model uh, is going to be so important to long-term gains because you're just, 
over the long term, you're, you're not just gonna walk into the gym every week and feel like doing more than last time. And if you did, it still wouldn't be as optimal as if you had a bit more objective data behind it, saying I did 10 last time, I'm doing 11. I did 11, I'm doing 12. Um, scenario number two is that you're, you are actually not going close to failure and you think you are. Uh, and again, I don't mean this condescendingly. Most people uh, are overestimating their efforts. Most people think they're going close to failure, but they aren't. And that's not, again, that's just like a fact. We see in the research that people who are relatively new to training suck at assessing RIR. They think they're at one or two RIR. They're really at like six to 12 RIR. Um, you know, the famous bench press study where people are doing bench press and they, I think, I don't know what RIR they were told to stop at. I think it was two. Uh, and then someone comes in and starts yelling and coaching them and they get like six to 10 more reps. Uh, and so there's a very high chance that you think you're training hard and it feels kind of hard, but the truth is you might have three, four, five, six, seven more reps and the difference between what you're doing and that might be stopping you from doing or, or might be stopping you from getting the adaptations that allow you to get stronger over time. Number three, maybe you are training close to failure, 100%. Maybe you are actually going in and working hard. You're just not, over the long term, doing enough work to cause adaptations. Like, maybe you're only training two or three times a week, and maybe that's just not enough volume for you. Or maybe you're only doing one or two sets of stuff, and maybe that's not enough volume for you. Um, or maybe you're doing shit exercises, and you're like, well, I'm taking my banded glute kickbacks to failure. It's like, okay, like, yeah, that's probably not enough uh, stimulus to cause an, a, a meaningful adaptation. So maybe it's an exercise thing. So maybe you are training hard enough, but the, you know, the exercises you're choosing to do or just the total amount of work you're doing is not enough to actually see growth over time. Cool. Next question is from Helen McArdle. And she asks, uh, I'm in a deficit. I'm hitting calories and protein. What is the optimal range of carbs versus fat? I'm lifting four times a week, getting 10,000 steps. If you follow this podcast for any length of time, you know that I'm a big I'm a big proponent of at least considering the benefits of just tracking calories and protein for almost everyone. I'm not saying everyone should do it. Um, I think everyone who's not doing this competitively, and when I say competitively, I mean, um, if you're a competitor, whether that's a professional athlete or even a bodybuilder, um, somebody who is making a living off of something that has to do with their nutrition, like that, where nutrition is a big piece of it, um, when you are that kind of person, even like a 0.01% benefit is something that you can't miss out on. If you're a regular person, you have other concerns. That 0.01% benefit might come at the cost of like your, like some lifestyle trade-offs that you don't want to make. And so, you know, you might be like the kind of, you might just be a regular person who's like, no, I'm really interested in making gains. Like, okay, you might be really interested in making gains, but 0.01% benefit might not, might still not be worth the trade-offs of lifestyle. And so I'm a big proponent of at least considering tracking calories and protein. Now, why is that, by the way? Um, the truth is when it comes to body composition changes, your calories and your protein when it comes to your nutrition versus all the macros is gonna make up 99% of your physique change. Um, and we'll talk about some of the caveats here in a second. But, um, you know, if you, especially in fat loss and, and weight maintenance and honestly surplus as well, let's just talk in, in broad spectrum of body composition changes. If you, if calories and protein are equated, you're gonna see the same results. Now, are there exceptions to what I just said? I would say there are. Um, if you ask me, what is the, uh, if I just wanna track calories and protein, is there a chance that I fuck this up by having a bad, you know, carbon fat ratio? There is, but there's, there's two circumstances. And I'll tell you right off the bat, these almost never happen. If you track calories and protein, where do I want your carbs and fats to be? Where I want them to be is not extremely low on either end of the spectrum. 
So is there an optimal range of carbs and fats? Yes, there is. And it is just not going extreme on either end. Um, if you just track calories and protein, I don't want you to go mega, mega, mega low carb. I don't want you to go mega, mega, mega low fat. Chances are some moderate balance of both of them, which again, could be a little higher on some days, a little lower on other days, is going to make all of the, the discussion of optimal range just totally wash away. If you take somebody who is mega, mega, mega low fat um, and mega high carb, let's say they're just having basically, you know, 1.1 gram per pound fat, I would say that's suboptimal. If you have somebody who's going keto, mega, mega low carb, I'd say that's suboptimal. Even some ketogenic research shows people gain muscle just fine. So you could even argue that that isn't suboptimal. I would say it's suboptimal if you're looking to make best gains for sure. But once you are having a decent amount, not an extremely low amount of either of those macronutrients and your protein and calories are equated, there is no fucking difference whatsoever. And let me just be very clear. People who track calories and protein 99.999% of them do not inherently default to extremely low fat or extremely low carb. Now you might go on the spectrum lower in one direction and that might be fine. But if I tell somebody, hey, we're gonna track calories and protein, most people don't get 10 grams of fat. Most people naturally get a bit or enough of both of these macronutrients where it doesn't really matter. If you are somebody that is deathly afraid of carbohydrate and when you track calories and protein, you inherently default to never eating carbs because you're deathly afraid of them. That is a a circumstance where I might suggest you count carbs so that you can eat your way up to a decent amount. But 99.999% of the time, if you just track calories and protein, just by you choosing foods that you like, most of us will get a balance of both of these that is just fine and makes the optimal range discussion just wash away. Cool. Quick sip of water, we'll keep moving. Okay, Anna Light, Anna Light 09. She says, I'm at maintenance, I'm still hungry despite lots of protein. Should I up calories? Isn't hunger a sign of a deficit? So let's start with this idea of hunger. Hunger goes beyond calories. Um, just to be, I know that, listen, calories are a big part of it. If you're in a deficit, you're going to be hungry. If you're in a surplus, you'll be less hungry. If you're at maintenance, you'll be moderately hungry, normal hungry, let's say. Um, so the amount of food, total calories that you're eating is a big player here for sure. But it's not the only thing that decides uh, how hungry you get. There are non-calorie related reasons, non-calorie driven reasons to be hungry. Um, you know, when I hear this, I'm like, Hey, somebody thinks they're at maintenance but they're still hungry. A couple things jump to mind. One is that you are, um, your expectation of, of what maintenance should look like is off. Like a regular person at maintenance still gets hungry sometimes. You know, where is that balance of how hungry you should be? That's a discussion worth having. That's where we would have a little bit deeper conversation. But if you're expecting to go to maintenance and never, ever, ever experience hunger, this is not the case. Um, so maybe there's an expectation management thing here that we can talk about. But there might be other things. You might be eating enough calories, but the overall satiety of your diet sucks. You know, if you're if you're like, hey, my maintenance is 2,000 and I'm eating 2,000, but I'm eating, you know, you might be saying I'm eating lots of protein, but are you eating higher volume foods? Are you eating higher fiber foods? Are you eating higher nutritious foods? Are you eating mostly whole minimally processed foods? You know, you could eat uh, a lot of protein and be at maintenance calories and still have an overall not satiating diet because you're low in protein, low in volume, low in high water content foods, uh, and you could still be hungry, right? And you could be like, oh, I'm eating enough calories, but the overall satiety of my diet sucks. And it's good, yes, you're eating a lot of protein, which we know to a point can be helpful in terms of satiety, but there are other things too. Are you eating enough fruits and vegetables, enough higher volume? Are you having enough 
Uh, are you hydrating enough? Not a huge factor, but a relevant factor. Are your, does your sleep suck? You know, do you have, are you being so mega restrictive on certain foods that there's a big emotional psychological buildup to want to eat certain things? You know, you might feel hungry. You might experience something that feels like physiological hunger. <clears throat> when you over restrict on certain foods, there is a, sometimes a buildup, a pressure that builds up um, to want to eat that food that you might experience as hunger. And so there are many reasons that you might be hungry. Now, if you listen to everything I said, you're like, actually, Jordan, my sleep is good. I eat a very nutritious diet, mostly nutritious, let's say. It's still, you know, there's still 80-20, let's say, right? Mostly nutritious food. I definitely eat enough fruits and vegetables. My sleep doesn't suck, and I'm not being so restrictive. If those things check out, then yeah, I think that it is worth exper experimenting with going up in calories. Your best life is probably at the upper end of maintenance. And I have air quotes for people listening in, uh, Spotify and, and, and iTunes and all that. But, um, when I say in air quotes, um, it's because your metabolism is flexible and it's chances are you can maintain your current body weight with a range of calories, depending on how, you know, it depends on the person, how wide that range might be, but it, it, you could, everybody who's maintaining their calories right now at a specific number could probably also maintain their calories, 100 calories higher and 100 calories lower. Again, not in all circumstances, but there is a range. There's always a range. And so you might, be experiencing a scenario where you're actually not at the top of that range and you could maybe go up in calories and you would not gain weight and you would feel better and less hungry, obviously. Um, and I suppose the last thing I'll say on that is maybe you are at maintenance, but maybe there is some genetic, yeah, I don't want to go too deep into this here, but maybe at the current body weight you're at, even eating the amount of calories that your body needs to function there's some genetic factors. A lot of them occur in the brain, in the hypothalamus. And this is something that uh, Dr. Stephen Guillenet talks about a lot. And I hope to get him on the podcast at some point. But this might be a body weight, a level of body fatness for you, that even if you eat maintenance calories, you experience more hunger here to a point where it's not sustainable for you to maintain this level of, of leanness. And that's tough for people to hear sometimes because you're like, well, if I just eat maintenance calories, shouldn't I be fine? It's like, won't maintenance calories make me not hungry? Yes, it will help a ton. I mean, it will help a massive amount, but there might be things outside of that that's still like non-calorie related, you know, things that are happening in the brain, things that have to do with your body fat set point, which I have a whole podcast on, I'll link in the description, um, where even at this body weight, this level of body fatness, uh, eating what science would expect to be your maintenance or maybe even what you know currently to be your actual maintenance given your actual life, like life experiences, this level of leanness might be something where even at that calorie number, even at caloric equilibrium, right? Um, a eucaloric, whatever, um, you might experience more hunger than if you were at maintenance five pounds heavier, 10 pounds heavier. You might find those body weights even equally at maintenance, relatively speaking, to be easier to maintain. And that's an interesting thought. And I think this, the more we learn about genetic role in body fat, body fatness, um, there seems to be more and more reason to suspect that there is some form of a body fat set point and that there are at least genetic parameters in which your body would prefer to be in. Uh, and again, I have a whole podcast on this. So I think it would be worth a listen if any of that was interesting to you. Next question is from the ghost on my back. I don't know if it's a guy or a girl. So he or she says, how much rest between sets and different exercises? I'm guessing you mean like when I'm done with my third set of chest press and then I'm moving to my first set of lat pull downs how long to rest between those. Um, 
listen, let's not overcomplicate this. I'm going to give you the straight answer. The straight answer is for hypertrophy, you can't go wrong with two to four minutes between sets. Done deal. Now, within there, there's a ton of nuance, and I think the way I would want people to think about resting between sets, I have clients all the time that are like, they want to learn to program for themselves. They want to learn a little bit more about how I program. And I'm like, listen, if you don't, maybe you don't have all the knowledge in the world to like create a, a deep reasoning behind your rest times, but you want to rest long enough. Listen to me. You want to rest long enough so that you can have another high quality set. You want to rest long enough that you can have another high quality set. If you do a set of hard hack squats and you rest 30 seconds, the next set won't be a high quality set. You're still going to be huffing and puffing. Your quads are still going to be toasted. Your like neural drive, your like will to work hard is going to be suppressed. You're going to be exhausted. It's not going to be a high quality set. If you rest three to f- three to five minutes, chances are you're going to have a way higher quality set. Now, what are some things that we can add to that to create a bit more of a nuanced answer? I would want you to rest long enough where the target muscle is recovered enough to do at least five reps. All right, let's say let's take a let's take the hack squat again. Um, you want to you want to rest long enough where the quads where the quads are recovered enough to perform at least five reps. Now, why at least five reps? Uh, we would say for hypertrophy that we probably want to be above five reps on average most of the time. Again, not a super hard and fast rule, but something like a, a heuristic that can help you think about this. Um, and what's cool is usually this is not the limiting factor in how long you should rest, so it's really not as important as some of this other stuff. You also want to rest. You want to rest long enough where your cardiovascular system and your synergist muscles are not the limiting factor in your next set. So again, in the hack squat, there aren't many synergist muscles, frankly, which is why the hack squat is so great, but your cardiovascular system will be limiting. When you get out of a hard set of hack squat, your heart is pumping. You're working super hard to get oxygen in. Like you're visibly cardiovascularly fatigued. You need to rest long enough so that when you start your next set, when you get into your next set, that that, your cardiovascular system, is not the limiting factor. Right, and we just talked about it. You're probably going to need at least at least two minutes before you get back into that hack squat, and you're not huffing and puffing anymore, provided that you were close to failure. And so you might rest a little bit longer on you know more quote compound lifts, more exercises that you know work more muscle tissue that are multi joint movements that are more systemically demanding, more cardiovascularly demanding, because you have other shit that needs to recover beyond the target muscle. If you do a set of bicep curls. You don't need to rest so long that your cardiovascular system comes back because that's going to happen pretty quick because it's fucking bicep curls. You are going to have to wait for your biceps and just your overall like state of readiness. You know, I, I choose that word over something like your nervous system, let's say, to feel like you're ready to do another hard set. And that might be less time than your hack squat. You might not need three to four minutes between bi- sets of bicep curls. You might need, you know, one to three minutes or 90 seconds to three minutes or 90 seconds to two minutes because you might find that your biceps are recovered after 90 seconds, two minutes and cardiovascular system was never really an issue. And so you're ready to go again. But when it comes to the hack squat, you're like, okay, maybe my quads feel ready after two minutes, but my cardiovascular system is still getting back to baseline. And and I couldn't even from like a neural drive from like a will to work perspective, I couldn't even fathom getting back into this hack squat just yet. And so that might be something where you're closer to that three to five minute. What I will say, one, it depends on the person, depends on the exercise, depends on the goal. But you can't really go wrong with two to four minutes between sets for hypertrophy. And when in doubt, rest longer, not shorter. I think that, again, that is, again, not a super nuanced answer. We can get way more into the nitty gritty with a lot of different contexts and circumstances. But man, if you're like, hey, should I rest two minutes or three minutes? 
okay, this, you might be fully recovered after two minutes, but there's no downside to resting three minutes. Uh, and so I'm not suggesting that you always bump up the rest times. If you're actually recovered after two minutes, go nuts, go ahead. You're gonna save yourself some time, you know, in terms of the total time it takes to work out, which can be helpful. But there's really almost no downside to resting longer in the context of hypertrophy. So if you're on the fence or you even, you know, the timer goes off at two minutes and you're like still huffing and puffing, like it's okay to rest a little bit longer. We need your sets to be high quality. That is the most important thing. All right, next question. Jade Hugh asks, when I'm at maintenance, is it wise to get slightly less steps at maintenance so you can use increased movement as a tool when you cut? I'm not gonna lie, I read this one a few times and I wasn't sure how I felt. So you have somebody who's asking, hey, should I almost like, um, you know, you probably have a circumstance where you're either at maintenance. The circumstance that usually happens is people go up in steps when they cut. And they're like, well, if I move more, it's gonna help me create a calorie deficit. And then they're transitioning back to maintenance. And they're like, well, should I bring my steps down as part of this? So that maybe when I go back into a cut at some point, I can use the increased movement as a tool. And I really went back and forth on how I felt about this. And the the broad answer that I felt was like, you said, is it wise to do this? Um, I think it mathematically, it will all work fine. This is comes back to, I can't give you a physiological reason why you should or should not do this. I can only tell you that it would work fine if you, uh, in trying to get into a deficit, used both your nutrition and increased movement to create that deficit. And then when you go back to maintenance, you use both more calories and less movement to bring yourself back to your TDE, your caloric maintenance, your eucaloric, your you know homeostatic state. Like I think that mathematically that all works fine. I think it has to come down to the individual. Personally, in my experience, you know, using, and I'm not saying you said use steps, not nutrition. I'm, I'm assuming that that's not what you said. We were like, well, I'm gonna keep calories the same. I'm just gonna fucking jack up my steps to get into a deficit. That I would say is a, a poor strategy. One that probably will never work. It's, it's unlikely someone's gonna stay at maintenance calories in terms of the, the calories they're consuming, but jack up movement so high that they create enough of a meaningful deficit that they lose weight. That strategy sounds terrible. That's not gonna work. Um, Using both to some degree where you decrease the calories you eat and maybe increase the movement is not a terrible idea. Um, mathematically, it will make more sense. And I think adherence wise and practical, my expectation for your success would go up. Um, but you could also be somebody who says, you know what, I don't want to modulate how much I move so much because how much I move is so constrained by my lifestyle that it's probably easier for me to pick an amount of movement that I can always do and you know, and I would say at least 8,000 steps a day for most people, and then use nutrition, the calories that I consume as the as a, more of the modulating variable, the thing that I'm changing to get in and out of a deficit into a surplus, out of, out of a surplus, at, go up to maintenance into a deficit. And so I think that I would just say primarily, I would want to see people at least, at least primarily use the calorie consumption as their modulating variable. I don't think I would, most people are gonna see greater success using movement primarily. I feel like that's gonna be a less sustainable strategy. I think probably the best strategies involve a bit of both, uh, where you're like, hey, I'm gonna make sure, maybe I go from eight to 10,000 steps and then I you know, decrease calories primarily. Um, personally, um, I find that I would rather the your movement be less volatile. And I guess I'm 
there's a bit of circular discussion here because I'm just saying the same thing again. I probably wouldn't want your steps to get jacked up. I don't want you to go from 8,000 at maintenance to 15,000 in deficit, then back to 8,000 at maintenance, even though mathematically that could work if you were modulating cal calories uh, in accordance with that, right? Um, I'm just not sure that the person who's jacking up their steps, I'm not sure that I've seen that be super successful. Um, again, you said, is it wise? I think that this would be a scenario where you might try this and see how it goes. You might, this might be a strategy that works really well for you. I can't give you a physiological reason why it wouldn't work. And so you might say personal preference wise, I can go, get four to 5,000 more steps during my cut and I can bring it down. And I'm smart enough to understand that when I do that, that means I'm going to have a little bit less of a calorie jump up and a little bit less of a calorie jump down and I'm gonna modulate my calorie intake in accordance with this change in movement. I think that if you're in a state where you can understand that those two are kind of two parts of the scale, um, like two you know, you know, different directions, that you're pulling in two different directions with those variables, and you can find the balance between two of them, I think it can work fine. So uh, you could consider trying that, and, and I think that there's nothing, I don't wanna, P.S. I don't want there to, people to listen to this and be like, oh, Jordan said I can't do more movement in my cut. Of fucking course you can, and most people probably should because most people should probably move more in general. Just don't make more movement your primary form of how you're getting into a deficit. That would be my piece of advice here. Okay, next question's from Mike Rusiniero. He asks, what stimulus would you choose with super low calorie like a thousand? So Mike is probably, I'm guessing he's asking this question from like an N1 education standpoint of like different stimuli of training. Um, Listen, Mike, to be honest with you, these are such low calories that I would, whatever you're doing, you can't do that much of it. Um, and you are for sure gonna lose some muscle. Now, you would only do a strategy like this of a very low calorie dieting, an extreme aggressive diet. You would only do this in a circumstance where retaining lean body mass isn't the primary concern. You know, like if you wanted to retain lean body mass, you wouldn't be doing this strategy. And so this is probably best for somebody with a lot of excess body fat where a reduction in body fat, even at the cost of a small amount of lean body mass is worth, you know, that is a worthy trade. And in that circumstance, again, because retention of lean body mass doesn't seem to be the primary goal here, I'm not saying you throw this question out the window, but you're just not gonna be able to do much training because you're on such a few calories and you're not gonna get a ton of benefit from that training because you just don't have a lot of calorie, a lot of energy resources to put forth towards muscle retention or God forbid any growth at all, um, which again, shouldn't even be a, real thing that you're focused on in deficit, but still, um, you're gonna have to accept that there's gonna be some muscle loss here. This isn't like a, how can I retain muscle on a thousand calories? You can't, um, because not only you, could you not survive the amount of training it would take, but you probably also uh, wouldn't get a big robust benefit from that because you just don't have a lot of like resources to recover and adapt. Um, so to be honest, I would do a few sets per muscle group per week of straight bread and butter hypertrophy work in that six to 15 rep range, close to failure, but I would not, do much training because I would see that added fatigue from the training as potentially not fatigue. I would really want to, to jack up too much because it's clear that a scenario where you're doing a very low calorie diet is not something where you're, I really need to retain a lot of muscle mass. I really need to retain all this lean body mass. Like it's more, it's clear that this is a scenario you would, a, 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 a strategy you would utilize when body fat reduction, even at the cost of some lean body mass is a, is a trade you're willing to make. Cool. How many more I got? One, two, three. Oh shit. Four, oh, five, six more. Oh shit. All right. We're going to do most of them here. Tony Karam4 says, 
Should I train the short position before the length of position? And if so, should I leg extension before I squat? Um, here, Tony, listen, listen. If all else is equal, and we'll talk about what all else means, yes, there is a rational for there's a rationale for starting with short position work and moving to more length and position work. Um, you'll fatigue first in short position. You'll be able to continue to do high quality work in a more lengthened position. So moving in that direction makes some sense. However, to be honest with you, I do a lot of programming. I've a ton of online, many online clients. I program for my group. And when I'm creating an exercise order, it's rare, not rare, it's less, uh, it's not something I'm thinking about a ton. It's obviously something that comes up and I'll give you a circumstance in a second, but it's rare that I'm like, well, I'm creating an upper body day. Let me start with the short position stuff. Um, I'm more concerned with neurologically complex movements. So if we take the leg extension hack, uh, the leg extension back squat thing, I don't want to do leg extension first, even though it's in short position, because I really, I need you to be neurologically your best when you do your back squatting, especially if you're not somebody who's been back squatting for 10 years and your form is super ingrained and subconscious and perfect. Um, I'm going to want you, like, we are going to learn best. When I say learn, I mean neurologically learn the best when we are fresh. And so I went and we are still maybe ironing out your technique. And again, even if you're not still learning, it's still more neurologically complex to, to squat first. And chances are, I'm going to want to squat first. Um, I'm also going to think about moves that, you, you know, you care more about performance with moves that you care more about growth, like the, the movements that work, the muscle groups you're trying to grow the most. I'm going to put those earlier in the session. Moves that are more emotionally taxing. And some of these overlap, um, you know, if just the thought of back squatting at the end of a workout, just the thought of it makes me know intuitively that sounds terrible. Um, you know, and I'm also going to consider sometimes moves that kind of help people warm up. Sometimes split squatting before back squatting or split squatting before hack squatting or split squatting before, and again, it's more neurologically complex. Sometimes leg pressing before split squatting. Sometimes people are going to feel, they're like, oh, my knee gets cranky when I get into the hack squat. But if I do my leg presses first, it feels great. But if I do the reverse, it doesn't feel great. Uh, I know that that's not a, a length and short discussion, but I'm just considering, especially with one-on-one -on -one clients, exercise order that makes them feel really great. Now, if I had two tricep cable movements, if I'm doing two tricep exercises, both with cables, let's say, maybe I'm doing an overhead tricep extension, training the long head in a more length of position, and I'm doing a step back cross cable extension, which is more of like an omni, all your tricep position, and I'm doing it stepped back for a more short position. Yeah, I would put the short one first, totally, because there are no other contraindications for me to think, well, that this wouldn't work that well. Um, and so if I have multiple exercises for the same muscle group and neither of them are more emotionally taxing or neurologically complex or, you know, have to do with balance, again, neurologically complex, or you don't, you're, I don't have a client who really cares about the performance of either of these movements over the other one. Yes, I'm going to go short to long, but there are a lot of other things that I'm factoring in and it's, I'm not saying rare, but this isn't my number one highest priority consideration when considering exercise order. Parth P9 asks, are JM presses good to hit the lateral head tricep in the mid-range? Any subs? I think JM presses are good. I think Tate presses are good or a single arm Tate press variation where you come more across the body and that would be a little bit more of a length of position. It would hit, be hardest in the mid-range, but it wouldn't be the mid, the new, more neutral middle range of the lateral head. And so those are two different things. And if you aren't sure exactly what those are, go listen to the podcast with Brian Borstein where we talk about um, training position versus resistance profile. Okay, so next question is from Katie Maymain and she asks, 
When it comes to a whey shake versus a chicken breast, is there a difference in the thermic effect of feeding because the whey shake is fast digesting? And I think it's a really good question. Actually, I didn't know the answer to this. Uh, I had a hunch and I did a little bit of looking into it. And so basically thermic effect of feeding is the amount of calories that are burned off in the digestion and absorption process of a food. Uh, protein has the highest thermic effect of feeding, meaning that when you eat protein, you actually burn off about 20 to 30% of those calories. And just for context, it's like 6% for carbs and 3% for fat. So it is a big difference. And that is one reason that we see higher protein diets tend to do better for fat loss, literally because it's probably a slightly less net calories eaten, um, one of the reasons. And so basically she's saying, okay, a whey shake is both liquid and quote, fast digesting. Whey is a fast digesting, fast absorbing, highly bioavailable source of protein. Does that make it less? Does it make it, does it make your body burn off less calories? Does it have a lower thermic effect of feeding? I did not know the answer to this, frankly, right off the bat. Um, there's no direct research of like whey shake versus chicken breast. Um, there was some whey shake versus casein protein. There was a whey shake versus soy protein, but I, I wasn't sure if those were gonna be so different. Uh, both of them were liquid sources. And I thought the liquid, when it comes to the word digestion, I would have assumed that liquid would have made some form of a difference. Uh, what I could discern from what I read is that there is a difference uh, and that the shake will probably have, again, if it's just like whey and water, will probably have a slightly lower thermic effect of feeding, but still a much higher thermic effect of feeding than carbs and fats. And so, you might, there was a range of anywhere from like 20 to 30%, right? That's the, the metric that we tend to see for protein in terms of thermic effect of food. And so the whey shake would probably be on the lower end of that spectrum and the chicken breast would be probably slightly higher on that end of the spectrum. But I would say that it would make minimal difference. And, and this is mostly just, I know you're asking just like from an interest perspective, chances are that it would be slightly lower. Um, and it would... You know, and so why why wouldn't it be much lower if you're like, hey, digest quickly and it's liquid? Why wouldn't it be much lower? Because the word digestion doesn't just mean like chewing it, and I, you know, what 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 my my body's stomach acids do when I, you know when I, when they're when they're there, and um, it also has to do with the absorption and the uh, the metabolizing of the amino acids, and that is going to be the same. Uh, both of these whey shake and chicken are both going to be broken down their constituent amino acids go into the amino acid pool and then they get, you know, used for rebuilding different tissues throughout the body. And that's going to be the same for both of these. So while you might have to chew the chicken and maybe it takes a little bit longer to break down in your stomach, um, you know, at the end of the day, they, all roads lead to a very similar place. And so it seems that because they are, because it is still protein, because there still are amino acids, uh, a lot of the process is actually still very similar. And so they're not actually that different they probably are slightly different, but they are not that different. Um, it's actually a lot of the, a lot of this burning off of calories is in the absorption and the metabolizing of the amino acids, which is going to be the same for both of these. Next question is from Dima, Dima, Dimarok, Dima, you rock. I don't know. Sorry. Um, is specific training of the of abduction and adduction necessary or just sensationalized for glute growth? Really short answer here, your adductors are not your glutes. Uh, they are, your, let's say, your inner thighs, so that just doesn't have anything to do with glutes at all. Um, and abduction or abduction is like kicking a leg out to the side, let's say. Um, the abduction machine that people do where you sit in the machine with the pads on the outside of your thighs and you push out, that works your piriformis, doesn't really work your glute max very much. That doesn't mean it's bad. It means it trains your piriformis. And if that is the thing that you want to grow then or get stronger, then that is an exercise that works that. But most people are thinking they're sitting here, you know, building a peach, you know, working their their glutes. Uh, they see, you know, chicks on Instagram doing this. This is not a good glute max exercise. I would probably very rarely program this ever. Um, 
if you want to work the part of the glute that that does abduction, that that does abduction, it's your glute minimus. And the best way to do that would be with a standing abduction. So like a standing cable abduction, basically standing in hip extension. I mean, the reason that the glute abduction machine doesn't train your glutes is because when you go into hip flexion, that gives the piriformis the best leverage to contribute to that movement. But when you stand up in hip extension or you lay down in hip extension, I guess, when you are in hip extension, your glute minimus will do that really well. But even that, I think when people are trying to grow their glutes, to, you know, isolating the glute min is not necessarily something that I would, I have ever programmed ever outside of academic purposes, like people wanting to learn. Um, Aesthetically, I don't think having a really big glute minimus is is what most people are are after, um, and so not necessarily something I would train a whole lot directly. So, cool, 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 cool. Okay, last two questions is uh, one is from tiu nurse underscore ig. I think that's your name. Um, and here she asks, I'm consistent with my program. I progressively overload. I'm eating two thousand calories, but I'm still having a hard time feeling stronger. I.e., pushups. Um, so I'm going to be as constructive as I can here with more content, without more context. I don't know if 2000 calories is good for you or not. That might be a deficit, right? I have no idea. Um, so I'm assuming you mean you're at maintenance calories. You're consistent with your program. You're progressively over overloading, but you're still having a hard time feeling stronger, i.e. in pushups. So the word feeling stronger is like, is always an interesting thing to me. You shouldn't need to like feel str stronger. You should know that you are stronger because when you're tracking your workouts, you know that you're doing more than you were six months ago. And you know you are stronger, whether you feel stronger or not is not uh, is just not objective, that's subjective. So, and there's nothing wrong with subjective. I'm just saying like here, like you shouldn't need to be like curious if you are stronger or not. Like you should know I am stronger, here are my numbers. I am not stronger, here are my numbers. And if you are progressively overloading, like you say, which leads me down a road of like, maybe you're not exactly sure what that means. Um, it just means doing more weight over time. If you are doing more weight over time, then you are stronger. And this idea of like, well, but I don't feel stronger. And so you either are stronger or you aren't. I mean, can you do more weight on average on most of your lifts? Can you do more reps on average on most of your lips, lifts? Then you are stronger. So why might you be doing all of that, but still not be stronger with pushups? I don't know. Pushups are like, um, they're a bodyweight movement. They have some element of a skill component. And I think what jumped to mind to me was the fact that you can't really make small incremental jumps when it comes to pushups. It's not like you can add one pound to your pushup, two pounds to your pushup, three. You can, you can put a, you know, a small plate on your back and then another small plate, another small plate. But most of what people think they, the progression is just doing more reps. If you weigh a hundred pounds, doing an extra rep of, you know, 150 pounds, whatever. Say you weigh 150 pounds. Doing an extra rep of a push-up is a big jump. That's a big thing. It's a big deal to be able to earn one more rep of a push-up. It's much easier to do the same number of push-ups with a five-pound plate on your back. That is a much smaller incremental jump. And the thing is, most people aren't making those incremental jumps on push-ups. And so they find, same thing with pull-ups. And so they find that progressing on those things is feeling a lot harder because they only have one tool. They are only doing more reps. Why can't I do more reps why can't I do double the reps in push-ups? Well, you would probably have a better chance of progressively overloading, of getting, you know, uh, doing smaller incremental progressions over time if you actually did small incremental progressions over time and added a little bit of load here or there. Um, or let's say you're someone who's doing elevated push-ups. Most people are like, well, I'm doing on the bench and then I go to the floor. And it's like, okay, that's a big jump in load. That's a big jump in difficulty. And so a lot of times when people do push-ups, they're not using small incremental progressions. They're just like, why can't I do five more reps than I did three months ago? It's because that's a massive, mega fucking huge jump. 
And if you, you probably could be feeling stronger on pushups if you were using small incremental load. Now, I'm not suggesting anybody has to do that. You might just not, like that's one reason that pushups are, you know, not the easiest to apply progressive overload. It's much easier to to grab a slightly heavier dumbbell and work on your dumbbell presses or add an extra rep to a dumbbell press. It's still gonna be easier. And so don't let, you know, hey, I can only do one more rep on pushups than I did three months ago, stop you from knowing whether or not you are stronger. And the last question is from Gregster1982, and he asks, what are the main benefits of sled pushing? Depends how you're using it. If you are doing very heavy for short distance, it'll be a bit more muscular work. If you're doing very light for short distance, but going as fast as humanly possible, that might be good for speed development. Moderate loads for moderate distances might just be good for cardio. At the end of the day, what you need to think about, Greg, is you need to think about when I do this exercise of what is the limiting factor? What is the limiting factor? Nine times out of 10, the limiting factor is gonna be some form of conditioning. Whether it's muscular conditioning or cardiovascular conditioning, it will be some form of conditioning. So the main benefits of sled pushing is conditioning, basically full stop. This, there's no hypertrophy application for a sled. Uh, we're never, you're never gonna see it in a, in a hypertrophy program. It's very systemic. Maybe there's some direct sports carryover, maybe, um, but it, you would never do this in a, in a hypertrophy setting. You would do this in some with some goal of getting greater conditioning, whether that's local muscular conditioning or cardiovascular conditioning, probably the latter. Um, yeah, so there you go. All right, guys, thanks for coming. See you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever wanna get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.